0: Hallelujah. Father, truly, we add our amen to this song. Our confession is there is nothing that can exceed you, nothing that can compare with you. Lord, no treasure of this world could ever be compared to the one who transcends space-time, this earth, and is the author and finisher of all in the first place. Lord, the scriptures tell us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. What a good judge, Lord, to know where our heart is, what do we truly value? As the magnifying glass of your scripture is trained upon our souls this day in the proclamation of our word, of your word, if it would reveal in our hearts anything short of a love and appreciation for Jesus Christ, his shed blood, that precious blood for the salvation of our sins above all other pleasures and promises of worldly riches and goods, I pray that you would move us to confess this as sin, to repent of our idolatry and to realize the privilege of standing in the house of God, that the only connection between a holy God and a sinful man is the ladder that extends from heaven to earth in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, upon which the angels of your purposes Ascend and descend the ministering agents of your holy will to interact and accomplish that which you intend from all history, from the point of creation to its consummation in the new heavens and new earth. And above it all stands the Lord from Alpha to Omega, the Savior, the Provider, the Sustainer, the Almighty Yahweh Himself. Before Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, before God the Father and His Holy Spirit, we, His people, bow. We recognize that any desire or pursuit short of the glory of Almighty God is a worthless and foolish endeavor. But in you, every legitimate purpose for which we were created is redeemed. Lord, would you, through the proclamation of your scripture this morning, Reinforce this truth through our souls, even as we pray that the miraculous power of your word would call the dead to life, the lost to salvation, and those who do not know Christ to confess and to believe. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Praise God. This morning, we turn to the Holy Scriptures in Genesis chapter 28. What a privilege to do so, what a gift, purchase of the cost of Christ's own blood that we have in our fellowship here together, may we never forget it. We truly are a house of God, that is a people of God in this assembly, and we truly are a house of God in that the Spirit himself indwells you if you are a true believer, and truly this is a privilege that Jacob himself in his experience in Genesis 28 teaches us, as the name of the very place where God visited him in this dream is named accordingly, Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. The title of this morning's message is Bethel versus Babel. There are similarities and there are stark contrasts between the the, uh, attempt to approach God, if you will, in the construction of the Tower of Babel and Genesis 11, And then the true connection between God and man established by the sovereign God alone in Genesis 28 was a text that's come to be known as Jacob's ladder, or as we have dubbed it in recent messages, it's heaven's stairway touching ground, Bethel versus Babel. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim the glory of God featured in the testimony, perhaps you could even say the conversion of Jacob himself to proclaim the glory of God featured in the testimony of Jacob. Testimony to what? Testimony to the vision of heaven's stairway touching ground in the experience of the called and yet sinner, covenant son, Jacob. We pick up on his story in Genesis 28. Out of reverence for God's word, would you stand for the reading of the same? And let us consider his scripture together. Our primary text will be 16 through 22, but let us read this entire account again. Listen as the word is proclaimed to you today, God's word that is, Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder. Set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west. And to the east, and to the north, and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone they had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, Then the Lord shall be my God, 22. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I've been working on a sentence for a few weeks. Well, off and on, not nonstop. If you will indulge me for a moment, I'd like to share with you a possible purpose for expository preaching. Expository preaching is the discipline of presenting the Word of God on its own terms. It is the discipline that I feel the weight of when I step into this pulpit. What is the purpose of expository preaching? You could say sound or biblical proclamation of God's Word. Let me submit the following. The purpose of sound preaching is to discover and disclose the glories of redemption woven in thematic harmony throughout the scriptures, testifying to the genius of what can only rightly be understood as the very Word of God. Let me read that again. The purpose of sound preaching, among other things you could say, is to do the following. Discover and disclose the glories of redemption woven in thematic harmony throughout the Scriptures, testifying to the genius of what can only rightly be understood as the very Word of God. This is my conviction, and it pertains to our text today as it does every text in Holy Scripture. And I wanted to pass that along as hopefully helpful to you. And as a statement, too, of purpose and one to which I need to be held to account, and every diligent preacher needs to be judged, I submit to you. Now, our passage today is one of those examples in Scripture which yields such fruit in this regard. What kind of fruit? That thematic harmony of the story of salvation woven through Scripture. Our passage today is one of those examples in the Bible which yields such fruit in this regard it ought to move the reader immediately to worship. Immediately to worship. How can I say this with authority? Well, that was the effect of the revelation upon Jacob himself. After all, was it not? How did Jacob respond to the revelation of God's word in this dreamscape? As he saw heaven's stairway touching ground, he was moved immediately to worship. That's Jacob's response, which we will study today. Awakening from our sinful stupor by the glories of our Savior upon Jake, uh, uh, of our glories of our Savior God, we in turn, like Jacob, ought to exclaim, "How awesome is this passage of Scripture. How awesome is this account? This is none other, as Jacob said, than the word of God, even as Jacob said, "This is none other than the house of God." Now this is the kind of accountability that we need to hold ourselves to when we study the Scriptures. And the kind of accountability myself as a proclaimer and a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ must be held to account in declaring the same. How awesome is the revelation of God's Holy Word. Let me emphasize this point in contrast to a worldview worldview example in our culture that's becoming more popular today i don't know if you've heard this term deconstruction or another sort of popular trendy word online that's getting some traction i've referenced before Evangelical, evangelical properly speaking is one who holds to the gospel proclaimed and explained in the bible as absolutely true that would be the best definition of evangelical There are those who want to distance themselves from that term evangelical, and the reasons are many and sordid, but they deserve, they must be discerned. There are others who question their Christian presuppositions in the first place and submit themselves to what they say is a real in-depth, honest self-reflection and scrutiny to challenge everything that I presumed was true. To be willing to deconstruct my former ideas, assumptions, and faith right down to the bedrock to see if it has any merit. That's what so-called deconstruction means. Now, uh, one of the singers of DC Talk, that famous you know, Christian band, Kevin Max, has identified himself as an ex-evangelical and you know given some allusion to this deconstruction concept. There's a couple popular internet personalities. The Good Mythical Morning guys, both of those guys were confessing Christians at one point and have gone through this process of deconstruction. Perhaps you're familiar with a famous author in our cultural circles, you know, from years some years ago, Joshua Harris, he wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He's embraced this concept of deconstruction. And there's a podcast I listen to from time to time because I'm kind of hopelessly sentimental about my own coming-of-age experience now in my 44th year. So I listened to this show called Labeled, which kind of documents the where are they now stories for Christian heavy music from a genre that I was interested in. And the host of that podcast is Matt Carter. He was asked a couple of weeks ago on that podcast by a secular uh, artist, you know, I'm interested where you stand in your Christianity now after all these years you're in a Christian band. Do you still identify as a believer? Matt Carter responds, no, no, I really don't. He said, You know, I still hold to the Bible as wisdom literature, but I don't no longer hold to the dogma and prescription of the scriptures. Two words dogma and prescription. What does he mean? Let me venture to say, let me venture to presume. By dogma, right teaching, clear teaching. By prescription, moral authority. Matt Carter has distanced himself from the clear teaching of scripture and the moral authority of scripture. What has he traded it for? Subjective preference. What is wisdom literature? Wisdom literature, he says, I filed right on the shelf with other wisdom literature from other philosophies and religions, you know, on the shelf of the open minded seeker or whatever. <clears throat> Which, by the way, is a violation of the very first principle of biblical wisdom literature in the first place. What is the axiom of biblical wisdom literature? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Matt Carter has lost everything. It's just apostasy by another name. He has no place to stand. And I feel kind of connected to the guy because this is coming from a genre that I sort of connected with when I went to watch shows and concerts when I was in college. When I was in college, I thought that this music scene, this Christian-heavy music, was made up of convicted Christians who were willing to say with a lot of distorted guitar, Jesus is Lord, I was naive because that music, industry, genre, theme, movement was filled with idolaters who had a veneer of Christianity, but when they were pushed to the test, they rejected him for what? The idol of artistry and music and subjective preference. What does Matt Carter miss and what will, if he doesn't repent, Kevin Max miss and what Is Joshua Harris missing in embracing deconstruction? All of the beauty of scripture, what I told you before, the thematic harmony woven through the scriptures themselves that reveal the glory of God in multifaceted, amazing resplendence. Why do I bring these up by way of introduction for this message today? Because this is the war. This is one of the battlefronts where Christian, The war for Christianity is being waged, and I have talked to a couple individuals, more than a few, or I, I should say a handful, I suppose, to be honest, who are actually influenced or touched or aware of what I'm talking about. Now, this is the contrast. On the one side, you have this view of the Word of God as something I was sentimentally connected to at one time, but now I hold questionable because the plethora of all that the worldly thinking has to offer. And on the other side is eyes opened by the Spirit of God to realize that you are living in Bethel and you don't deserve it. This world was created by the God who spoke, let there be light, and the sun began to shine, who said, let there be the trees of the field and the galaxies, and the earth, and the air necessary, and the ecosystems necessary to sustain life, and spoke Adam, and formed him by his very hand from the dust of the earth, and stooped low, descending, if you will, down the ladder of his eminent glory, to imminently breathe into that corporeal form of Adam himself, and give him life in the first place. When you walk in nature, you are standing in the house of God. Are you blind like Jacob and don't even realize it? If you are, the word of God comes to awaken you from your stupor of blind sleep. As you exist at the mercy of a sovereign God, Yahweh, who stands over the ladder, the only way a sinner can be reconciled with the holy God, who has spoken. He hasn't just spoken in his world, as I just referenced, but he has spoken in his word. And he has spoken through Jacob's dream. And it is Jacob's dream that we behold in this text today. And all of the beauty and the power and the thematic harmony of the scriptures tied together in this moment, which we will expound in this message, will be lost on those who remain blind, with their idolatrous hands clamped over both their spiritual eyes and refused to acknowledge the God of Bethel, the God of this world, the God of their existence, the God of the breath in their lungs. Jacob awoke, and he was freaked out because he, in his obstinance and in his inexcusable obliviousness, if you will, was blind to the mercy of God which kept him alive day to day, cared little to nothing of the covenant and was negotiating life by his sinful means, scheming, lying, tricking, thieving, running, freaked out, a fugitive because of his sin. And this day I submit to you he was converted. He was converted because of the grace alone of a sovereign God who opened up the eyes of the undeserving on that glorious and terrifying night in Bethel where the heavens broke open and Yahweh extended his stairway from glory to earth and said, unless you realize that the only way, the only truth, and the only life is by my design and plan and covenant alone, you remain lost in your transgressions and sins. And Jacob repents and believes. Jacob's dream interpreted will continue this heading in light of three things. Number one, his response. Number two, prior context. Number three, future fulfillment. Now, this joins our last message. Jacob's dream interpreted in light of the occasion and the encounter. We spent some time going over Jacob's the occasion for this moment, the circumstances that led up to it, you know, the sin and dysfunction in the whole household. We spend some time going over the encounter itself. The readers beg three times to behold. What, is, what are we called to behold? Behold, what is it, kids? Three things to behold in the story. Can anyone name one of them? Behold what? Well, good, good, good guess. Any others? Behold the ladder. Behold the angels ascending and descending. And behold Yahweh standing over it all. What does that mean? the interpretation of Jacob's dream. We covered that a bit last week. We'll cover it more today. Suffice it to say, under this heading, Jacob's dream interpreted in light of his response. Jacob's uh, response. You could call this point also Jacob's pillar. We're familiar with Jacob's ladder. It's come to be the sort of title that we recognize the story by. But are you as familiar with Jacob's pillar? It's referenced twice in our text today. Verse 16, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, And we have this testimony, this confession of his awareness, now awakened, not just from physical sleep, from spiritual sleep. He realizes he's in the house of God. So what does he do? Verse 18. Early in the morning, he took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. This is Jacob's pillar. Verse 22, he references the stone again. He says, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This pillar represents Jacob's response to the revelation of Almighty God. He does something. He responds to this eye-opening, terrifying, glorious revelation. First of all, his response is marked by confession and fear. What does he say? Surely the Lord is in this place, verse 16. And I did not know it. Did Jacob have any excuse not to know that this was Bethel? He did not. And let me reiterate why. Genesis 12, 7 through 8, you don't need to turn there, 13, 3 through 4. We covered it in our last sermon. What was significant about this very location? Did Jacob name this place, or was he recognizing a name that was already given to it? The second is true. His grandfather, Abraham, had named this place Bethel. Why? Because God had revealed His Word and His covenant to Jacob's grandfather years and years before. The altar then was built by Abraham so that he and successive generations, his children, would not forget that Yahweh is Lord, and by his covenant is the hope of salvation alone. Jacob stumbles into Bethel, and he's inexcusably blind. He's without excuse and oblivious. Why? Because he has negotiated life by his own sin, failing to revisit the altar of his grandfather, and be aware through that means that he serves at the pleasure of the Almighty. At this point, who is Yahweh to Jacob? The God of his father. In 27, verse 20, But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He, Jacob, answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Something changes this glorious and terrifying night in Bethel. Among the changes is this. Yahweh goes from the God of his father to his own. Verse 21, Jacob said, And then the Lord shall be my God, so that if I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Young people, we've been speaking to you several times in recent messages. There is a necessary transition in your Christian upbringing if you come from a believing home, in which the challenge and call will be to own your faith. In other words, when God regenerates you and that fruit is, becomes more evident in your life increasingly, the God that you understand of the scriptures and the salvation and the truth of the gospel will be less and less the God of your father, the God of your mother, and more and more, my God. This is what happened to Jacob in this powerful and profound experience. And his response was confession of his sin and fear. Confession that he, without excuse, was blind to the fact that this place was sacred. Now, others had responded in similar ways to the revelation of God, did they not? Among them, <clears throat> throughout the scriptures, we see some other examples Moses, burning bush. Guys, kids, uh, remind us. So, God speaks out of a burning bush, and what is the first thing he tells Moses to do? You, Thanks, Theo. Take off your shoes for this, what? Why? For this is. Holy ground, that is correct. So that revelation of Yahweh in this form of the burning bush places a demand on the sinful subject to recognize with reverence that you're dwelling in the presence of the Almighty and you don't deserve. And by this statement, by the significance of taking off the shoes, it was something uh, that acknowledged the presence of God's sovereign holiness and thus Moses was awakened to the reality. And in obedience, he took off his shoes, and as he did so, he recognized that the place where he stood was holy ground. Jacob similarly recognizes that the place in which he stands is holy ground, and so what does he do? He sets up a pillar. He confesses his sin. He takes a vow. He anoints the pillar. Confession and fear. Why is Jacob afraid? because he's in the presence of a holy God with the power to do something about it, whose visitation will be judgment for the unrepentant and salvation for only those who love the covenant, and he's been blind this whole while, and now the heavens are open, and he sees the sovereign power of the almighty Yahweh to judge, and he, a sinner without excuse, is shown this picture in a moment, knowing he's just tricked his brother, lied to him, conspired with his mother, to steal the covenant blessing. Jacob knows that he deserves judgment. Well, what does he get? He gets mercy. Why? Because Jacob was awesome, because he did the right things? No. Grace alone. By grace alone, Jacob was saved, and he came face to face with the grace of an almighty God at this moment. Has God come down the ladder before? He certainly has. At Babel, the Lord came down the ladder. Did he come with grace? No. He came with judgment. And that vain attempt to attach heaven and earth was busted by God's power to punish when he introduced confusion and destruction on that vain attempt to obtain salvation many other way. More than that in a moment. Has God come down at other times? Yes, he sure has. He came down at Sodom and Gomorrah. And you guys know what happened there. For those who were in the covenant, Abraham and Lot, they enjoyed a feast, a meal, with God himself taking on this form of the angel of the Lord and sitting down at feast, at table with Abraham and Lot. Why? Because they were in the covenant. Are you in the covenant? If you are in the covenant, that is, if your sins are atoned for because you trust the blood of Jesus to save you from their consequences, when the Lord comes, it will be a glorious day of salvation. But what was, it? What was that day of God's coming For the unrepentant, oblivious, who remain blind in the house of God in Sodom and Gomorrah, judgment. As history records, a meteor exploded over the place. You can read multiple news stories if you search it online. Seven, 800 mile radius. And the explosion of that, I mean, we're talking secular scientists have come to this determination. A meteor literally exploded with, I don't know, it's like the force of 65 atomic bombs or something insane. And an 800-mile radius was, de- or uh, something like that, was deemed infertile because the blast, the, the you know, quote-unquote nuclear blast, the virtual nuclear blast from the heavens destroyed the soil composition so crops couldn't grow in that region, turning everything virtually to assaulted wastelands for centuries and centuries. And even today, as archaeologists dig up this sign of God's judgment, they remain blind. An archaeologist, it's like, oh, well, you know, the Bible had an account of this, but it was a natural occurrence. It wasn't the hand of God. If that's the conclusion at the end of that archaeologist giving you this account of a nuclear blast precisely destroying the area that God proclaimed was doomed for judgment, then what is that archaeologist? What is that scientist? He's Jacob without awakening. He's got both his idolatrous hands, maybe the idol of science, maybe the idol of secularism, maybe the idol of Darwinism, maybe the idol of I can do what I want because there's no transcendent power over me. There is no such thing as Yahweh that stands over me. And He's got those hands of science clamped over his eyes, refusing to bow in the house of God. And he has less excuse now that he's discovered the sulphur remains of the civilization who was once like him, blind in his transgressions and sins, and refused to repent when the angel of the Lord visited. This is the reality, and this is why Jacob responds in fear. The Lord visited Adam and Eve in the garden. How did they respond? With fear, and rightly so. Because God came down, and there was an accounting and a reckoning, and it freaked them out, rightly so. Peter, how did he respond? With the miraculous power. When he realized that this is not just the most awesome teacher, but this must be God in flesh. When he filled the nets till breaking with fish, Peter said, Depart from me. I am not worthy of your presence. Jesus speaks and stills the storm and the book of Mark. And how do the disciples respond? With fear and trembling. Jesus casts out demons. The man in Gennesaret to the tune of legion, and how do the people respond? Go away, go away. Why? Because they recognize in the coming of Jesus, the power of Yahweh was present with him. And because they didn't have the assurance of their sin atoned for, they were blind just like the people, or they were shaking in their boots just like the people at Sinai. You speak for us, Moses. You speak for us, Moses. Have you ever seen a blast so bright, or the sun burning so bright in the sky, you know you can't look at it for... If you do, you will be blind. You know, you're, you can't take it and you wince and you turn away and instinctively, impulsively, you put up your hand to shield yourself from the blast. <clears throat> That's what it's like only multiplied by infinity when God shows up among sinners. And this is what's happening. This is ja- why Jacob responds in confession and fear. This is why Jacob meets Yahweh face to face, repents of his sin And evidence of that repentance is immediately there. Confession, fear, and altar worship. When he sets up that pillar, Jacob's pillar, it's like a proto-temple. It's an acknowledgment of God's presence. It's like an early form of an altar. By the way, he'll return to this very location and set up a legit altar in chapter 35, 1 through 7. And we compare this response to even Peter at the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, I used to think Peter was dumb. And he's like impulsive, and he just blurted out at the Mount of Transfiguration, you know what, Jesus is there, Elijah and Moses, and you know, the shining. And he's like, Lord, if it be your will, let let me build three tabernacles for you. Now, Peter was a little short-sighted, but it was a reverent response, I submit, because he was moved to do something in light of this revelation. So was Jacob to build a tabernacle, to acknowledge the presence, to respond accordingly, to move immediately to worship. Now, what Peter probably missed was that the tabernacling of Jesus Christ would take place in the human heart. So the power of Jesus and the gospel would transcend a physical location and it would be carried with every true believer to the ends of the earth. Nevertheless, that kind of response is irreverent. And worshipful one. And it explains Jacob's response here, which is rightful. He was pre enacting, if you will, an oil ritual ceremony. He pours oil on top of his pillar. And in so doing, what is significant? Well, oil represents a number of things through scripture consecration, the anointing of that place, and recognizing its holiness, and deeming it so by the pouring of this oil. Also, I submit to you that this was the very first tithe that Jacob paid. Oil was expensive a precious commodity, he couldn't carry much with him. I I suggest, just historically speaking, that oil was likely in Jacob's pouch as he traveled as something that would give him, uh, that he could secure a shelter with or barter with, basically currency, let's say, expensive, desirable commodity. And what does he do in the house of God? He's so moved that he takes a tithe of this precious commodity, perhaps the most precious he carries with him, and he pours it out. Why is he moved to do so? His offering is in response to the amazing revelation of the Almighty. And what else can he do but pour himself out in service and dedication? He makes a vow of dedication for the Lord because of the amazing grace that God has shown to him, not to strike him dead as he deserved in a moment, but instead revealed to him that in Christ, ultimately speaking, in the covenant which would be fulfilled down the road, A bridge between heaven and earth is established so that Jacob can be ushered up heaven's staircase one day if he trusts in Yahweh as his savior and eventually his son, who would be his own son, that would pave the way for Jacob's salvation and yours and mine if we but open our eyes in the house of God and believe. Altar worship, vow of dedication. Jacob dedicates the place and himself. He recognizes that the place is holy. It needs to be acknowledged as such because God has shown up here. And all generations now must see and believe and hear. And so he recorded this, and it's recorded by Moses as well in the scriptures, so that we might behold. And the reader has begged, as we've said before, three times, behold. Behold the ladder. Behold the angels ascending and descending. Behold Yahweh. And then later, God himself says to Jacob, behold, this is the Emmanuel principle. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Who is Jesus? He is Emmanuel. He is the fulfillment of this very promise. He is God with us. Thus, this moment deserved a vow of dedication. So Jacob dedicates the place and himself. He takes this vow. Now, this is a disputed text. There's different views. Some think that Jacob had more sanctification. Well, he certainly needed more sanctification, but they think this vow is evidence of that. He was kind of bargaining with God. Here's how it reads <clears throat> in our translation anyway. So that, uh, or if the Lord will be with me and will keep me in his way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I, can't, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. There's two ways of reading this. The first is that Jacob was kind of barger, bartering or bargaining with God. The second, and I think more responsible read given the context and the construction of vows would be the following. So, Jacob uh, could be also saying this, given that God has promised unconditionally and irrevocably, that means without conditions that Jacob fulfills, and it will not be irrevocably, it will not be changed, a promise that God swears by himself as he did to Abraham. So again, given that God has promised Jacob unconditionally and irrevocably to be with him, verse 15, therefore... I declare, Jacob says, henceforth from now on, the Lord shall be my God. And I believe this is the reading that most accurately reflects the changed heart of Jacob and the response, dedicating the place with the oil and himself by vow, henceforth from now on in the service of Yahweh. What else can he do in light of such glorious revelation? Jacob's dream interpreted in light of his response, and the second point today, in light of prior context. We consider Jacob's pillar, let's consider the antithesis, or the opposite, or man's try, best efforts, the fallen tower. Turn with me to Genesis 11. Bethel versus Babel. Genesis 11-1, you remember the story, right kids? The Tower of Babel? How now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As the people migrated from east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, here's their great idea, verse 3, Come, let us make bricks. Every phrase is significant. Let us make bricks. And burn them thoroughly. So just like Jacob, originally, the means at our disposal to secure our position, right? And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mourner, right? Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Sound familiar? And let us make a name for ourselves. So again, not bowing to Yahweh who stands over His stairway, but let us build our stairway. Let us reach the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is humanism, humanism's legacy. This is man trying to solve the dilemma of his vulnerability due to the fall by his own bricks and mortar, by his own means and mechanism. This is salvation by works. This is social engineering. This is socialism. This is communism. This is, man's, this is secular man securing the future by a technocracy. And from the very beginning, from Genesis 11 to today, when most all I submit of our legislators propose how to secure our future and promise two things, provision and protection, what do they do? They build a tower of Babel. They don't acknowledge with eyes wide open the principles, the promises, the precepts, the statutes, the commandments, all those glorious words that the psalmist gives us in Psalm 119, whereby a young man shall keep his way pure? No, but they run to their brick and their mortar and their... uh, own abilities and design, their common language and common idea, their democracy, their collective ingenuity, their hope in technology to secure their future. And how does it end? Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built, and the Lord said, ironically, the Lord's going to come down here, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people, they all have one language, this is only the beginning of what they will do, And nothing that they will purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there. God is going to descend. Jacob's ladder, if you will. Heaven's staircase. But is this going to be a descension, a condescension of salvation? Or is this going to be a coming of judgment? Kids, which will it be? God comes down on the day of Babel. Coming of judgment. That is correct. And nothing they propose will be impossible. Then come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand what another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. And they left off building the city. They abandoned this central <clears throat> planning, you know, hope for salvation in the future. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Babel, by the way, which means confusion or the Semitic equivalent of Babylon. There's a Semitic equivalent that means the gate of God. Which is a presumptuous, idolatrous uh, hope that was represented in the building, in the enterprise, that they could open the gate to God by simply building this tower and their collective ingenuity. It says, Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. By the way, the Assyrian word for Babel, Babylon is the city, uh, something like the city from which the tribes were dispersed. So even the, even the surrounding pagan nations represented what ha, or, uh, reflected in their own history what happened at this moment, testifying to the universal truth of God's Holy Scripture. This is the antithesis of Jacob's ladder. Now, uh, yesterday, so I, I told uh, Israel and Ren, my boys, I would quote them today because I asked a question in family worship. Um, it was this, give me your thoughts comparing and contrasting Babel versus Bethel. And so Israel's answer was, on the top of pagan ziggurats were altars to idols. On the top of Jacob's ladder was Yahweh himself. To which I said amen, and I'm going to quote you in my sermon. That's really good. <laughs> on the top of pagan ziggurats, so he didn't use that term ziggurats. I'm <clears throat> editing a little. But he said on the top of buildings of this sort you know, were altars or idols. On the top of Jacob's ladder was Yahweh himself. Wren also had a quotable observation. This is almost word for word. Wren said, Jacob's ladder reached all the way to heaven, the Tower of Babel, colon, not even close. Maybe a semicolon there, my wife could tell me. Jacob's ladder reached all the way to heaven, the Tower of Babel, not even close. Amen to that as well. So history is littered with ziggurats and these pyramid structures, these towers, these Babel building enterprises. The ancient world is full of them. And we have them today too, they're just in different form." come by way of sometimes, you know, ideas more often than they did material things in the past. Nevertheless, you know, in, the, uh, in Central America, and South America, all the way over to different portions of the Near East, all the way down to Egypt, there's pyramids, there's ziggurats, there's these high places, there are altars. History is littered with them, and every single one, with the exception of an altar to the one true God, that God commissioned to build through the covenant family line and so forth. Every single one is a Tower of Babel, so to speak. Every single one is a vain attempt, and on top of it is a false notion of who God is and the presumption that we can get to him by our own means. But the gospel comes through and through from the earliest pages of Scripture to the end, saying, "By grace alone you are saved, not by works of righteousness, not by Babel's tower, not by man's ingenuity, not by your collective ideas and notion and the strength of the populace. Will there be salvation gleaned? No. But salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone who connects heaven and earth in himself. Jesus is heaven's ladder, heaven's staircase touching ground. And of course at Babel, as we mentioned before, the consequences were judgment condescension. Yes, the Lord comes down. That's the irony. They do connect heaven and earth in a sense. But when that connection is established, they get what they deserve. The consequences, the day of reckoning. The Lord says, you asked for me and now I'm here. And I will, dis- I will destroy this project, confuse your languages, ruin your cultural identity, that is your idol, ruin this sense of, you know, uh, strength that you glean from all you guys working together, and you'd be henceforth dispersed all over the face of the earth as judgment for what you've done. And then from that dispersion, I will call one man, not to build a tower, but to go on a journey, not even knowing where he's going. Who is that man, kids? Who did God call on a journey? Abraham is correct. And now we're reading the account of his grandson whose eyes are open to the antithesis or the opposite of Babel. Did Jacob have a tower of Babel? He did. His scheming and his tricking, all of that. That was his attempt to better his station, to secure his future, to earn salvation by his own means and living by his wits. But his eyes were open one day. He repented of his Babel building impulses and he placed faith in the one true God, heaven's stairway touching ground. Indulge me one final point this morning, if you would, by turning to John chapter 1. Jacob's dream interpreted in light of Jacob's response, the prior context, the fallen tower, and number three, future fulfillment, the Son of Man. This connection I'm about to give you, this is an example of the thematic harmony I was talking about woven through the Scriptures that just evidences in such a profound way the unique quality of Scripture. Scripture. And if you don't understand the scriptures, if your eyes are blind in Bethel, you will not see this. But as the Spirit opens your eyes and you begin to see the glories of heaven's staircase touching ground and that connection through the scriptures, it is profound and amazing and it will move you, as I said before, to immediate worship upon the revelation. John 1:14. The announcement of Jesus Christ by the apostle in so many words continues in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Kids, who is the word? Capital W, kids. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God is correct, but we need more specific, a little more specific. Jesus is correct. And the word, or Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word... The expositors tell us, those who study the original languages in the Greek and so forth, of dwelt is a Greek form of tabernacle, only verb. So literally, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That is, God became a man in the incarnation and set up his habitation with you and me. Literally, the house of God established in the coming of Jesus Christ setting up the house of God in himself when the word of God became flesh in the incarnation and dwelt among us. This is John disclosing who Jesus is. John will go on to uh, disclose more. And this is Jesus' own self-disclosure to one of his disciples in verses 45 through 51, same chapter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets spoke, wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Hey, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Some translations, guile. Say guile. An Israelite indeed. Listen. A son of Jacob indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus is drawing a parallel by contrast with Nathaniel and who? Jacob. Jacob was a man who lived by his deceit until his heart was changed. Jesus is referencing this parallel, calling out Nathan as a different sort of man, reading his heart, stunning the disciple. Nathanael answered him. Rabbi, his eyes are open in the house of Bethel. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the king of Israel. That window of revelation, Jesus reading his heart, was enough by the Spirit's use, of this means, to open up the disciples' eyes to realize he was in the house of God. And he was talking to the Son of God. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? This is an argument from lesser to greater Jesus. is not condemning his belief. He's just saying, you haven't seen anything yet. If I can paraphrase. You will see greater things than these, Jesus says. Notice verse 51. He, Jesus, said to him, Nathanael, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is Jesus referencing in this proclamation? Heaven's stairway touching ground. Jesus says, from now on, your eyes will be opened and you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Saints, members of the household of God, I'm here to reveal to you, to disclose to you the glories of redemption woven in thematic harmony throughout the scriptures, Jesus Christ is Jacob's ladder. Jesus Christ is heaven's staircase touching ground, and Jesus himself disclosed that to Nathaniel, <clears throat> the Jacob to come, as it were, Israelite in whom there is no deceit, whose eyes were opened by the Spirit to realize the fulfillment of Jacob's dream in the incarnate Son, Word made flesh, who came and tabernacled among us. This was the future fulfillment of Jacob's ladder that we see when we connect the dots of Scripture by the self-disclosure of Jesus himself. Jesus goes on to be anointed. This is a connection that occurred to me this week in my study, you remember, that he sets up a pillar, Jacob's pillar, And he pours oil on the top. That is to say, Jacob pours oil at the foot of where that ladder meets earth. Is there another example of fulfillment in the New Testament where oil is poured on the feet? Four times recorded in the Gospels in Bethany, which means, by the way, house of affliction, a woman, Mary, we find her name revealed in John, poured oil on the feet of the ladder. And that oil in the house of affliction prepared our Savior for burial. And Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached, her story will be included because she had her eyes open, though one time a gross sinner, that she was in the house of God and poured out her own oil of sacrifice and value and consecration, preparing prophetically Jesus Christ, the latter for his burial. And because Jesus went to the cross, the latter, the connection between God and man is established because Jesus died, we can, in spite of our sin, be ascended into glory because that death paid for our sin. Jacob pre-enacted the anointing of Jesus Christ and pouring oil at the foot of the ladder. In fulfillment and preparation for burial, Mary in the house of affliction and Bethany poured oil on the feet of the ladder, Jesus And because of what that signified and represented, the obedience of the Son of Man to go to the cross and pay for our sins, heaven's stairway touched ground in the incarnation and in the gospel. And we now, through Christ alone, by grace through faith, have free access to the realms of glory, the presence of God Almighty, through our mediator, our savior, our ladder, our stairway, Jesus Christ. Contrast this with those who believe, I maybe appreciate my Christian upbringing and experience, but, you know, it's good as far as it goes. But it's on the shelf with other interesting things. And I prefer to consider it, you know, subject to my own interpretation. Not really bearing any authority and weight over me. Compare that to the revelation, the discovery and disclosure through legitimate preaching. If the word of God has been preached to you and spirit and in truth today, If God, by His grace, overcoming my own frailty, has been pleased to use the proclamation of His Word to rightly divide the Scriptures, thus connecting at least in one small way the glories of Jacob's testimony by pointing out the harmony of revelation woven through the Scriptures in a way that only God Himself could engineer, then you, if you have heard this and believed, have had your eyes open through the proclamation of God's word to heaven's stairway touching earth and a glorious engineering that only God himself could accomplish. And so how do we respond? Immediate worship. In a moment we'll pray and close and express that heart. I pray you'll join me in worship to the Lord. But why do we come next Sunday? Because what we've heard this morning and what we hear in the scriptures when we read daily and what we hear proclaimed time and again on Sunday morning reminds us that in Christ, heaven's stairway has touched earth and in our salvation, our eyes are open. And what can we do but serve him? What can we do but pour out our tithe, as it were, and offer ourselves in service to the one who has given himself to save us? This is the interpretation of Jacob's dream, given the larger context of the foolish attempts and vain attempts of man to construct their own way and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Where do you stand? Which will you hang on to? Which will you tie your fortunes to? The Holy Spirit proclaims through his word that in Christ alone is the hope for salvation. If you have not already, repent and believe. And if you have, look forward to every opportunity to pour out to the Lord the worship he so deserves by vows of dedication and service to him. Oh, Lord, thank you. I did not deserve it. Inexcusably, I was blind in the house of God. But by your grace alone, you opened my eyes. Keep them open, Lord. And I pray that you would open the eyes of Matt Carter. I pray that you would open the eyes of Kevin Max. I pray that you would open the eyes of those good mythical morning dudes. I pray that you would open the eyes of Joshua Harris, all these apostates, and anyone else in our culture who has stood in the house of God, not just in nature, not just in creation, but they have heard the gospel preached. Do you realize the accountability you have in standing before the Lord of glory? So much less excuse if it could be said, oh Lord, open our eyes, open their eyes. Let there be a revival. And let us realize the only way, truth, and life is Jesus Christ. The ladder, the stairway, the only possible connection between a sinner and a holy God. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for the proclamation of your scriptures. We thank you for their power, their weight, their authority, their beauty, and their self-disclosure of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would etch upon our souls the reality of these things that we might never forget, but that we would be moved by the declaration of the same to respond with immediate worship, recognizing with grateful hearts that our sins are atoned and that in Christ alone is our salvation. O Lord, we pray for those whose eyes remain blind in the house of God, who exist breathing the air that you graciously supply. and eat the food that your mercy and providence allows to grow in the fields of this fallen earth. We pray that they would repent and believe. Would you use the proclamation of your word, our own testimony, whatever means that you Lord, have decreed to reach the lost with the gospel. Give us a fresh heart. Those who believe that Jacob's ladder has touched the ground in Jesus Christ, whose eyes have been opened to the reality of the same, Lord, give us words, give us wisdom, and give us that motivation to proclaim that to our children, to the lost, to the oblivious who cover both their eyes in sinful idolatry. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would move this land to repent, the church first, and the society following as your word is declared unequivocally spirit and truth without the adulterating twisting of man's influence. And bless us here, Lord, we pray by your grace and mercy to further appreciate and understand your word so that on the day of your return, we may welcome the God of glory knowing that heaven's staircase has touched the ground in our own hearts, not fear the day of your reckoning because our sins are not atoned for. Thank you, Jesus, for the assurance of salvation in your holy blood. We pray that next time at your table, we would just be overwhelmed with joy and assurance as we partake in that picture of what Christ alone supplied. It's in his name we pray, amen.